When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greg Kokel is the founder and president of Stand to Reason, and he's the author of the award-winning books, The Story of Reality, and the best-selling Tactics. Greg, great to be talking with you again on Takeaways. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, I always have a good time with you, Kirk. Thanks for having me back on. I'm so excited to talk with you. Every time I have tough questions in my mind or when my kids are asking me questions about the problem of evil or about the sovereignty of God and the will and responsibility of man, I'm thinking, I got to get to Greg Kokel because he's going to have a well-reasoned answer for this, or at least a good question for me to go back to my kids with. Questions are key to my entire approach of sharing my faith, talking about Christ, uh, answering challenges, dealing with objections. And uh, the, the reason I approach this uh, in this fashion is, uh, well, first of all, I got a tip from Lieutenant Colombo, who's the TV guy, you know, uh, some people remember him, the detective who always used questions prosecuting his murder investigation. And so I found that this is a great way to go about having conversations with other people. Because uh, if you kind of come in under the radar, kind of seem not so scary to people or not too aggressive with people, and you start asking questions about their view, what their view is, and uh, what the reasons for their view is, this gives you a foundation to continue in the conversation to maybe make a difference for Christ. And uh, my emphasis in these questions is, first of all, just to get information. I mean, that's the very, very basic first step. Um, for Christians who are nervous about getting in a tight spot, or maybe they don't know where to go next, uh, using a question of some sort gets them off the hot seat, tosses the ball in the other person's court, gives them a chance to uh, explain their point of view a little bit, maybe the reasons for their point of view, and that gives the Christian lots of information. Now, maybe the Christian isn't going to be able to go further than that. We can talk more about that too. But as an initial step, in a conversation, especially those that feel like they might be a little bit awkward, starting out by asking questions provides a tremendous uh, degree of safety for the believer. And especially if you're asking questions, you're not making statements, so you don't have to defend anything. Asking questions puts the ball in the other person's court and allows you to gather information that's going to help you proceed in the conversation in a safe fashion. And that's one of the biggest values of questions, Kirk. Greg, your new book is called Street Smarts. Of course, you've become known as the questions guy in tactics, and this is sort of tactics 2.0, if you will. Uh, in it, you talk about harvesters versus gardeners. Can you explain the difference between these two terms? This is somewhat controversial, Kirk, and a lot of people don't agree with me on this, but um, I look at the way that I became a Christian and the gospel was communicated 50 years ago in the Jesus, uh, the, the Jesus movement, you know, and uh, we share the simple gospel and get people to pray to receive Christ. They sign on the dotted line and, and they become believers. And of course, a lot of people did. Um, but it, it occurred to me a couple of things. First of all, that isn't the way they did it in the New Testament. They, they had a different approach. There are no altar calls. There are no people being in, asked to pray to receive Christ as Lord and Savior there. Something else was going on. Now, I'm not against that. 
I think it can be very useful, and I've used it myself, both of those motifs. However, there's a lot of Christians that think if they have to witness in a way that requires them to challenge somebody to receive Christ, they're not going to do it. They're just going to sit on the bench, okay? And so what I've, I've, what I've made a distinction between is some distinction that Jesus made in John chapter 4. He said that some sow and some reap. Okay, some sow and some reap. He told, told the disciples right after that conversation that he had with the woman at the well that, that uh, they were about to reap where they did not sow. Somebody else did the heavy lifting and they're going to get the easy pickings. Okay, and that just shows that there are two different seasons in people's lives or in a community's life, like Sychar there in John 4, or two different uh, and two different types of workers. Okay, you have some, you have a, you have a, a sowing season. Now I call that gardening or a reaping season, which I call harvesting. And then you have sowers or gardeners, and you have reapers, which are harvesters. Here's my conviction, Kirk. When the fruit is ripe, it falls into the basket, okay? That happened to me a little bit more than 50 years ago uh, when I had been thinking about Christ for a long time, and my brother Mark had been doing the gardening in my life. And on that night, September 28, 1973, he came to share Christ with me more, and I told him, Mark, I already want to become a Christian. So he didn't harvest me. I harvested myself, right? Of course, we know the Holy Spirit harvests me, but that's the way it is. I've been taking polls with audiences, Kirk, and I've been amazed 65%, 60 to 70% roughly of all the Christians in the congregation raised their hand when I asked them, did they come to Christ in a, a way other than coming forward for an altar call or having someone pray with them to receive Christ? I couldn't believe it's the two-thirds of Christians yeah. characteristically, in a certain sense, yeah, harvest themselves. And the reason is simple. I just said that when the harvest is ready, the fruit just drops right into the basket. You just need to give it a bump. God's going to take care of the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest, okay? Mm. What we need to be thinking about doing is gardening. So if I can give people gardening tools and I tell them, don't worry about that harvest moment, just worry about planting, watering, weeding, tending to the garden. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered. God caused the increase. Let's let God worry about the increase and let's do a little here and a little there. Yep. What I call putting a stone in someone's shoe just to get them thinking. And then we're going to see with a lot of gardening, we're going to have a much bigger harvest. And that's what the tactics book and the Street Smarts sequel to Tactics is meant to do, is to give people gardening tools. Greg, what you're saying is absolutely true. I experienced that in my conversion. I was an atheist, and I remember kids in my fourth and fifth grade class who were Christians that would say things to me that I thought was just ridiculous. I would mock and tease them for their faith. But you know, here I am mm -hmm. 53 years old, remembering back to fifth grade when those kids planted seeds in my mind and in my heart and others watered it, like Josh McDowell through some of his books. Someone took me to church. There was a mm -hmm. girl that I thought was cute. And if she was a Christian, maybe this ought to be something <laughs> I'd look into. And then I discovered other things. And when, when, when my heart was ready, when the fruit was ripe, it fell into the basket. And it wasn't through an altar call. It, it wasn't through somebody asking me to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. I was sitting in my sports car thinking about the fact that one day I would die. And if I found out that there's a God and a heaven, I knew I wouldn't be going. And I said, God, would you show me the way? And that was the beginning of my spirit, spiritual journey. 
Greg, tell me, what are some of the mistakes that Christians make in attempting to share their faith? Well, uh, the first mistake I've kind of hinted at, and that is they don't ask enough questions, okay? And tied to that is a presumption that um, they know what the other person's view entails when they hear a line, I'm pro-choice, I'm an atheist, um, the Bible's been changed, or are you an evolutionist, or do you take the Bible literally? These are all things that people might say to us, and we presume we know what they're talking about, and then we go off, maybe if we know a few things, to give an answer, to make a defense, and we may not be answering the thing itself. Okay. When you say, uh, are, do you believe in evolution? Well, what do you mean by evolution? Do you take the Bible literally? What do you mean by literally? Um, the Bible has been changed. What do you mean it's been changed? Uh, I'm an atheist. What kind of atheist are you? I toss the ball back in their court. What about the problem of evil? What about it? Well, it's a problem for you, isn't it? What's the problem? I'm just tossing the ball right back to them. It's not because I don't want to engage the issue or engage them. It's because I want more information. And I found if I get more information from that person, okay, and uh, that, that not only do I understand their view better, but I also, they also understand their view, view better. And sometimes that's a surprise to them. Here's another mistake. If you do know an answer to a challenge, the mistake is just stating the answer. Okay, um, because as the Street Smarts book is subtitled, we want to use questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. So even if we know the answers, we don't want to preach them at the person because th that can be effective, but it's not shrewd. Jesus said to be shrewd. Okay, and so if we know how to use specific questions pertaining to that specific issue to guide people along to make the final point that there's something wrong with their view to give them something think, to think about. Well, now that's much, much more effective than what we were doing before. So I want people to ask a lot of questions and also know how to use the questions they ask, and we can talk more about that uh, pretty soon, so that they are able to make their point using questions that is much more powerful than uh, just preaching at people. Greg, I appreciate in your book how you also talk about the distinctions that we need to make, discerning whether this is a person that's a total stranger, uh, someone that we already know. We might want to take some different approaches here, learn to ask different types of questions. Um, how do we keep from making the person to whom we're asking these questions feel interrogated? Because we don't want to preach at them and make them feel like uh, they're just the target of my answers, but we also don't want to ask so many questions that it's like, you know, where were you on the night of the fifth? Why do you believe this? How did you come to that conclusion? And all of a sudden, that's just as offensive. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, a, a lot of it is just in our own manner. You know, what we want to be is genial and have a genuine curiosity regarding the other person's view and the reasons that they hold it. That's the way we start. And even when we're moving them down to a conclusion they want, we want them to see using questions, that's the street smarts uh, aspect of it, we still want to do it gently. But I, I was asked this question before, and, and there is no way that we can guarantee people will not be troubled at some point if they think we're using questions to help make a point. And the reason is, is because we are using questions to help make a point. It isn't to win the point for ourselves. It's to make the point that something that they believe is false. And that thing that they're false in their belief about really matters. It's going to have eternal consequences. So that's the reason that we're engaging people to get them to think. Now, in my view, I'm not trying to close the deal. 
So I'm not going that far. It makes things easier for me. Maybe I'll give them the idea and I say, okay, you think about it. You don't answer to me. You just think about that and see if it makes sense to you. And then I let it go and let that happen. That's the gardening aspect of it. But sometimes people are going to be a little bit bugged. What's the alternative is the question I have, Kirk. The This is the most genial way of engaging people on spiritual and ethical matters that I can possibly imagine. And if this genial way ends up bothering some people, the only alternative for them is for us to say nothing. And that is not an option for us. Greg, I love this. You're saying sometimes the very best thing we can do in a faith conversation is not to uh, uh, jump to answer a skeptic's question, but rather to take a step back and ask them some questions themselves. Why do you ask that question? What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Mm. So let's put some of this to the test. Can you give some examples of how these strategies have been effective for you personally? Yeah, uh, let me, uh, let's take an atheist, for example. And I've had this particular conversation is not only in the book because there's lots of conversations, uh, model conversations in the book, Street Smarts, in order to show you how this works. And you can use the questions for these different aspects yourself. But I was uh, lecturing at uh, University of Toronto and during the Q&A, I was challenged about reasons for the existence of God by an atheist. And so I said, do you mind if I ask you some questions? He said, no, go ahead. First, do you think that things exist? Yeah, I do. Actually, he wasn't so, he, he was fudging a little bit. Finally, he said, okay, this microphone exists, right? Okay, I can work with that. I agree with you, the microphone exists. Things exist. Second question, the things that exist, whatever they are, have they always existed? No, they haven't always existed. They came into existence at the Big Bang. This is what he's gonna say, right? Now, I don't want anybody to get uptight about the Big Bang language. Just forget about that. Here's the thing to remember for the Christian is that everybody believes the universe had a beginning. We do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They do, Big Bang. So we share the conviction that the universe had a beginning. In other words, I say to him, there was no universe and then there was a universe. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so here's my third question. And this is the one that's really important. What caused the universe to come into existence? Now, of course, the atheist doesn't want to say something caused the universe to come into existence because that puts something outside the physical universe. And he didn't believe in that because he's an atheist. Uh, and the something would have to be pretty smart, would have to be pretty powerful. It'd have to be a person to initiate this, this uh, creation event. Um, and so what's left to him, though? The only thing that's left to him is to say nothing caused the universe with no reason and for no purpose. Okay, well, that certainly is an option, but is that the odds on favorite? I mean, that's worse than magic, right? Because a ma magic, uh, a magician pulls a, a rabbit out of a hat. In this case, you got no magician and you got no hat. You just got the rabbit, you know, coming out, the universe as it were. So here's the point that I'm making. Um, I am, I'm, I'm sticking that person with this question to think about because I'm not trying to prove that there's a God. Maybe things came into existence out of nothing for no reason, but is it the odds on favorite? That's the question. Is this the most reasonable explanation for the way things are? And the answer is no. God's the most reasonable explanation. Now, if he wants to go with nothing, he's welcome to it, okay? But, and I'll tell him that, if that's the way you wanna go, fine. However, don't say that there are, is no evidence, there are no reasons to believe 
in God, because this is a very good reason, the origin of the universe. Now, what happened with that atheist, Kirk, is that he, he wasn't satisfied, obviously. He walks away from the microphone, but before he left, he said, well, I want to go with a scientific answer. And I said to him as he's walking away, but you haven't given a scientific answer. You haven't given any answer at all because there is no other answer to give. It's either something or nothing. That's it. And he's going with a different kind of miracle. And by the way, at this point, when somebody says, well, the universe came out of nothing, so you believe in a miracle, don't you? No, I don't believe in miracles. Well, what would you call that? That's a miracle. That's a godless miracle, but it is a miracle nonetheless. So both sides have to appeal to a miracle, but at least our miracle has a miracle maker. And this makes a lot more sense because uh, there were a couple of steps that were involved. Things exist. They don't always exist. They must have come into existence. Something must have caused it. That something is God. I mean, that's my argument, the cosmological argument for the existence of God. But if I had preached those steps to him one by one, at every step, because he's a critic, he's going to want to deny it. Oh, no, the, maybe we're just all butterflies dreaming. Oh, maybe the universe was eternal. Who knows where it came from? Who's to say? And all of the stuff that they push back with. And now you're getting nowhere. But that's not what I did. Instead of me putting the pieces on the table that he could take exception with, I asked a question that got him to put the pieces on the table. If he puts the piece on the table, things exist. They haven't always existed. Okay, great. He's not going to take them off because he put them there. So there's not going to be any mm. argument. What I've done by using the questions, and this is street smarts, I am enlisting him as an ally to make my point. And then when I get to the final point, you might want to call it the mic drop moment or whatever. I'm not trying to abuse him or make him look silly. I'm just saying this is where that leads. Okay, what do you think? What do you think? And that's the stone that I'm trying to put in their, their shoe. Not going to have an altar call. Not going to invite them to pray to receive Christ and sign on the dotted line. No, I'm just going to let it go. That's my gardening technique with that issue, but it's very powerful. Okay, let's talk about the problem of evil. If God is good and loving and powerful, why does he allow evil in the world? This is a more challenging question, and there's actually two ways to approach this. Um, the question you ask, why does God allow evil in the world, is a very hard question to answer because it entails our understanding of God's purposes, which he hasn't entirely communicated to us. Uh, there's a way to go there, but in Street Smarts, I deal with the problem of evil in a different way. Uh, what I show is, given the problem of evil, this turns out to be a good argument for God's existence, not against God's existence. And that's why the chapter is titled, Evil, Atheism's Fatal Flaw. That's the way I'm going to pursue this right now. And the backstory simply is, if you believe that there is a problem of evil, that means there must be things that happen in the world that shouldn't happen. These are not the way the things are supposed to be. If we encounter a circumstance where they're not the way the things are supposed to be, that means there is a way that things are supposed to be. And you can't have a way that they're supposed to be without a sposer. <laughs> okay, so maybe I went a little fast for that. Um, here's another way of looking at it. And I'm just explaining the backstory here that I'm going to incorporate into question. I ask people sometimes, can you break the speed limit on the Autobahn, that interstate kind of highway in Germany? Can you break the speed limit? Well, the answer is no. You can't break the speed limit on the Autobahn. Why not? Because there is no speed limit. 
Okay. Um, now, speed limits are something that are established by governments. If there is no government, then there can't be a speed limit to break. All right. So you can't have broken speed limits. If you have a broken speed limit, and that's the parallel to the problem of evil, there must have been a government on a transcendent level that that says that we should do certain things and not do other things. And uh, that government is going to be God. There's really no other way around that. I talk about options in the book. If people caught this idea, in order to have things go wrong, you have to have a right way they're supposed to be. And you can't have a right way they're supposed to be unless you have someone who is authority over the universe to say what the right and wrong things happen to be. Okay. Well, now when people bring up the problem of evil, I ask them, well, what problem are you talking about? Then they might spell it out for me. And I say, okay, so you think these things are wrong that you just described. Okay. My question is, what is it that makes them wrong? If God doesn't exist, all we have is molecules in motion. So what makes something wrong if there is no God? Now, this is the this is the heart of the problem. And I have uh, in the book, I have two or three different ways that I play this dialogue out uh, because there's a little bit of complexity there. But what I want your viewers to get is that the problem of evil is not a good evidence against God. It's a good evidence against atheism because you can't even have evil or good unless you have a transcendent standard. And that requires a transcendent lawmaker, and that's going to be God. And there there just is no other option for objective good and evil, what many Christians call absolute good and evil. What do you do if you if you don't have the answer to a question that somebody asks you? Let's say you're like, wow, that's a, that you know what? I I don't know what to say. Uh does that even really matter? Because what you're saying is maybe you don't offer any answers. You're here to ask questions. We shouldn't be afraid of saying, you know, that's a good question and I'm not sure how to answer it. I need to work on that. I need to think about that a little bit. And the reason that we don't have to be afraid of those uh, things that we can't answer is because nobody can answer everything. And what we're trying to advance is Christianity or the Christian view of reality. You mentioned the book, The Story of Reality. We're trying to advance that story of reality as the best explanation for the way things are. All things considered, what we have is the best explanation. Doesn't mean there aren't any loose ends. It doesn't mean there aren't any questions that are unanswered. Mm. What it means is that we're doing the best we have with what we know, and this is the smart money, as I mentioned earlier, is really on Jesus' view of the world. I would have great confidence getting into a faith conversation if I just had you in my back pocket, and I could pull out my Greg Kokel, <laughs> and you could just start asking people questions. How can the average person like me, a viewer who's watching us right now, begin to gain more confidence in our own ability to engage people with tactics like this. What I encourage people to do is if you think of the game plan as the three steps, okay, the first one, you gather information about what the person believes. The second one, you gather information about why they believe it, okay? If you think of those first two steps, anybody can do that anytime in conversation with people, all right? You're just being a student of the other person's point of view. And when you just do that, you're not trying to make a point, you're just simply trying to understand their view, be a student of their view. You're gonna learn two things. First of all, you're gonna learn that people aren't as scary as you thought. You start to personalize things, you have a conversation and you are genuinely interested in their view, you're gonna realize, hey, this isn't as scary as I thought it would be. Secondly, you're gonna realize that their ideas are not as well thought through or as compelling as you 
originally thought. And this happens just by talking with people. When you just start with those first two steps, you're going to learn how to engage and converse and just get more comfortable with it. And that'll help them, okay? Even if they don't go further to the third step, the street smarts step. Greg, these are powerful principles. These are principles that I want to get a good handle on. And um, we can get these, uh, these principles through street smarts. Tactics is, is, is an incredible book, but uh, the 2.0, out on the streets, next level. Greg, thanks so much. Love having you on Takeaways. Thanks so much. It's, it's always refreshing. It's always equipping and encouraging. Thanks, Kirk. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.